Welcome to Above and Below, a Salt Life podcast where we're going to be exploring above and below the surface. We'll take in a deep dive into the world of fishing, diving, and surfing. Every week, we're going to sit down with experts to learn more about them and get their freshest, hottest takes on all things salty. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Above and Below, a Salt Life podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Anderson, and today we have Blake Cook on with us. Blake, you're a NASCAR driver. You race. Give us a little update on yourself, where you're from. I know nothing really about you besides your freaking gnarly and race NASCAR. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, Blake Cook from West Palm Beach, Florida. Moved up here to Charlotte, North Carolina in 2011. Um because of NASCAR, right? This is kind of the NASCAR hub. And if when you're a driver, anybody really in the sport, this is pretty much where you live. So had to had to leave South Florida, <clears throat> come up here to the Carolinas. But man, the 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 way you and I relate is Salt Life was my very first sponsor back in 2008. Yeah. Wow. How did you get into NASCAR racing? Like, where do you start? Yeah, that's I haven't been asked that in a long time. I mean, for me this is this is a crazy part of my story is um i just googled it like the same question you asked me i um uh, i wanted to be a race car driver so i googled how how to become a nascar driver and, are you um, serious yeah i'm dead serious man it's kind of Dude, it was a little what? embarrassing during my career but now it's kind of cool to look back and um it was like you need to try to get on one of the top teams as a development driver I was like that's how you make it i was like okay that sounds cool so i started calling all the NASCAR teams, Hendrick, Gibbs, RCR, Penske. And um, and the first one that called me back was RCR, Richard Childress Racing. You know, that's the team that Dale Earnhardt drove for. It was like one of the biggest teams. And a guy named Mike Dillon uh, was like, hey, you know, if you're interested, you might want to try to drive for one of our satellite teams as a development driver. I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. Like, that's what I'm calling. And then he hooked me up with their development team. And I just wore those guys out every couple of weeks. Like, hey, give me a shot. Give me a shot. Yeah. And I didn't even have any race wins yet. Like, I had no reason for them to even let me drive their car. But with enough persistence, uh, they gave me an opportunity in uh, October of 2008. They're like, hey, it's the last race of the season. Um, we'll bring our backup car for you to drive. So they had their primary car, which with with their current driver and they brought like just the backup car for me to drive just to try. And uh, I ended up out qualifying their other driver that's been driving for them for a while. And like, <laughs> and like just a miraculous deal happened and they signed me to a two year development deal. And, um, I became on, you know, an RCR development driver. Dude, that's so crazy. What did you race beforehand? Like, were you racing anything? Yeah. So in Florida, um, my stepdad bought this truck. It's called a pro truck. It's like, I mean, worked out of it out of a garage and um, brought it up to Orlando Speed World and DeSoto Speedway just in Florida and raced. And I think I won one of those races. Um, it was pretty good right off the bat. Like it was pretty natural. I grew up racing dirt bikes and motocross. Yeah. So I knew knew about racing, knew about discipline. And, uh, and to me, this was much easier than motocross, to be honest with you. And, uh, and I was running good, but like, I didn't have, like, I wasn't up in North Carolina racing against the, the big teams. I was just doing local stuff. So I had some experience, but, but not as much as, is uh, 99% of the guys I was racing against in my first start. Dude, those cars are pretty gnarly, huh? Like, I feel they like dip their suspension down, right? 
I mean, you want them as low everywhere as possible. So it's all about center of gravity. So like if you're going super fast, you need to change directions. If the weight's high, it, it won't turn. So you want everything as low as possible uh, for low center of gravity. So they, they put these cars on scales. So like in the shop, they'll, they'll put all four tires on scales and they know exactly what weight they want each tire to have, so how much banking the track has, how much, fa how fast you're going. It's, it's crazy the amount of engineering and effort that goes into these race cars. Like they know how much load you're going to have in the center of the corner and they set up just perfectly to, they know what lap time you're going to have. So as a driver, sometimes it was hard when you weren't up to speed. Like if you go to a track for the first time and you're kind of trying to be easy with it, it's going to handle like garbage because it's meant to go a certain speed to hit a certain load with a certain amount of downforce. And the faster you go, the more downforce you have. But then it's like, I'm afraid to go that fast. I've never done it before, but you have to. So it was definitely a uh, definitely learning curve. I'm like a super big mechanic guy. Like I love working on stuff. So I got to ask you some questions. What, what, what is it like prepping one of those things? What goes into it? What kind of motors and trans do you guys use and everything like that? Oh man. As the driver, once you're once you're at the NASCAR level, you don't you don't touch the car. Um, you're not even allowed to, right? There's a checklist and people initial oh what they goodness. did. Yeah, so as bad as it sounds, I have no idea what kind of motor was in the cars I was racing at the NASCAR level. But I know, like when I started, like we talked about in 2008, when when Salt Life was my sponsor back in Florida and doing the late models, we had like a, a crate motor, um, like a GM. Uh, 350 crate motor with a four barrel carburetor on it. Oh, so they're running carbs on those things. Yeah. Yeah. Back in it still today in the Xfinity series, they're running carburetors. Um, so, but not in the cup series, not the truck series. So it's, they're going to be gone soon, but, um, but my car is back in Florida and still most of the local cars you see, like you hear about short track racing and local short track racing. Those are all carbs. That's crazy. That's pretty nice. Are you guys yeah. like, how often are you putting tires on that? Obviously, you see the pit crews just hauling butt, just getting after it. How often are you guys replacing tires when you're racing? Yeah, well, there's an allotment you're allowed. So NASCAR will send out a rule for the weekend. Um, for an example, you, you're allowed to have you know 14 sets of tires this weekend for the Cup Series. So you, your team will kind of strate strategically pick out what they want the tires for. Two sets of tires for practice, one set for qualifying, you know, nine sets for the race. This is how many we want stage one, two, three. Um, so at that level, it's like $2,200 a set too. So it's expensive, right? Like they just burn through $2,200. But at the, at the local level, the short track level, um, they were like $200 a tire. So like 800 bucks for a set, 100 bucks to get it mounted. So you're looking close to $1,000, you know, to have your nitrogen and your tires and everything mounted. But we would typically just get one set for the whole weekend back, back when it's like when I'm paying for it. It's like yeah. our own car. And, Dude. Um, and you're not making money, right? You're losing money. Yeah. So um, we'll do one set of tires for the weekend. NASCAR is so expensive. It's pretty gnarly. I remember um, talking. So my family here, where I live, uh, I grew up with a professional skateboarder that ended up marrying Travis Pastrana. And she was talking Lindsay? to us. Yeah, Lindsay, yep. Do well, you know Travis that? raced against yeah. me in the Xfinity Series. So Lindsay Dude, was there, right. and I think she was pregnant when he was racing against us. Yeah, yeah. So, she's yeah. Bristol and Addie. They're yeah. crazy little girls, but that taking over 
what they do. I mean, Lindsay's pro skater and Travis is the ultimate mm-hmm. dirt biker. So, um, but yeah, he was, he was talking about like NASCAR and stuff. And he's like, each race is like close to a million dollars. Yeah. It's putting crazy. in that money to go yeah. race NASCAR. So yeah, at the cup level. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Like there's so many different levels, right? Like what? There's three main ones that like the general public would know. It's trucks, Xfinity and old school guys. We call it Bush. Uh, and then there's the cup series, the highest level. So what were you racing? Mainly the Xfinity series Saturdays. I did like five or six cup series races, but to be honest with you, I'd never wanted to pursue racing in cup. Like I wanted to be home on Sundays. I wanted to like enjoy life a little bit. Like I didn't start racing until I was 20. So it's not like this lifelong dream to be this cup driver. Like I thought it was cool to make money to drive cars. So I could do that with the least amount of pressure (laughs) in the lower schedule on Saturdays. It really just fit um, what I was trying to do. Did you have like a driver when you were growing up that you looked up to that influenced you to become a NASCAR driver? No. Uh, The first race I ever watched was the 2007 Daytona 500. Like it was the first race I ever watched. My mom and stepdad were always watching the races on the weekend, but I was all about motocross and surfing and skateboarding and just like, I didn't want to watch cars drive around in circles on the weekend. Like I just wasn't into it at all until I watched my first race. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty sick. There's a car upside down flipping on fire at Daytona. <laughs> that was the first one I watched. And it was Clint Boyer. That was the one that was flipped and he caught on fire. I was like, man, this is nuts. And then I made my first NASCAR start a year later from that. Wow. Yeah. So it was like fast track. So I'm that kind of guy. Like most people, I mean, you might be too, but like, if you want to do something, you just do it. You go all in and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but you got to give it your best shot. How does it work with lining up like in spots when you start on the race? Back when I raced, there wasn't a choose cone and I'll, and I'll explain to you what that was. So when I raced, it was like, you know, odd numbers on the inside, even numbers on the outside. So the leader always get the pick. So the leader could go inside or outside, but let's just say he goes inside. So first place is front row inside, third place is second row inside, fifth place, third row inside, and so forth. So now you get to choose. So you're coming through the choose cone and your spotter's telling you like, hey, this guy went to the bottom where you want to be. And you get to choose if you want to go top or bottom. So now it's a little chaotic but it makes for pretty intense races. How do you get like arm fatigue? Some did the worst arm fatigue I ever had was at Charlotte. I lost power steering at like the beginning of the race. Oh God. And when you lose the amount of like caster and camber and load and all this stuff you have, it's like impossible to turn the wheel. So you have this little teeny steering wheel. And I just remember like pulling as hard as I could to get the turn. It was miserable. I was super sore. Did you go through the whole race? Yeah, I did the whole race. Wow. Yeah, it was tough. It wasn't pretty. I mean, I was probably running around 20th or something, but Jeez. I was beating other people that had power steering. So that's that's something to be said. What um is there like a workout regimen for you guys when you go before you race and stuff? Yeah, um, everybody's like we're all independent contractors, right? Like drivers. So there's no set thing. They're, the team doesn't require you to do anything. You're on your own. You want to be the best you can be. So when I raced, I hired the best motorsports trainer in the world to be my physical trainer. His name was Alden Baker. He trains all the Supercross champions. So he was like Ricky Carmichael's trainer in. James Stewart's trainer, Ryan Villapoto and Ryan Dungey. So he trained all the Supercross guys. And to me, like Supercross dirt bike racing is the most physical sport. It's gnarly. Like, 
it's yeah. insane because I grew yeah. up doing it and I knew like how hard I had to work and how tired I got. So I hired the best guy possible. So I was in incredible shape. Um, and that's why I could finish that race with no power steering is thanks to Alden, the program he had me on. Like my nutrition program was nuts. Like for two years, I had no red meat, no, no added sugar, no dairy. And I was like 130 pounds, 4% body fat. Retired now, I'm 150. Who knows how much body fat? But uh, <laughs> but back when I was getting paid to work out, like I was in the best shape possible. Yeah, I mean, your regimen has to be on top of the game, especially like food and diet too. Like being mentally prepared is so important. Like yeah. almost more important to be physically prepared. Like absolutely. And the harder yeah. you work, the more like mentally prepared you are because you know the sacrifices you made all week. You're clear. And uh, in our studying, like we have SMT, we have like data to look at we have film reviews we have a simulator like most drivers have a simulator at their house i have one upstairs it's called iRacing rig it, yeah and you'll my wife my wife used to think it was like i was playing right but it kind of is playing it's like a video game but it's really realistic but i was working in a sense so you get to play to work it's pretty cool how long are the races what in the xfinity series it was uh two and a half hours maybe, you know, two, two and a half, sometimes three hours. So my average heart rate in those races was about 150. Holy smokes. Three hours. The The biggest thing is the heat, man. It's uh, it's like 150 degrees in that car. So you have a little bit of cooling coming in through your helmet with a fan, but sometimes those break, but it's just hot. And that's the part I don't miss is how hot I always was when I was racing. What's the longest race you did? I did the Coke 600. So... When I did, you know, I told you about the six cup series races I did. I did the longest yeah. one there is, um, the Coca-Cola 600. So I got to experience pretty much the longest race in NASCAR. How long, uh, how many hours is that? I don't, I don't even know, man, but it was, it was long, like long. I remember being like, oh, when's this thing going to end? And the spotter's like halfway i'm like oh my god i'm not too sure i'm gonna be able to make it like, no I was way so dude. hot i was hungry hot it had to be five or six hours dude that's so nice i feel like my mental game at that point would be so like i'm so add like i want to just go do stuff at all times so i i would be losing my mind dude yeah what do you do like what do you do do you listen to music or something no, I mean, it's not like a relaxing cruise control ride. So yeah, like, I know. <laughs> the whole time you're trying not to crash. Like that's the one thing it's hard to explain to people is like, it looks like drivers are just driving and they're in and they're limited, but you realistically, every driver is trying not to crash every corner of every lap. So your heart rate's high. If you're not on that edge of almost crashing, you're not going fast. So it's always pushing that edge the whole time. So there's never, you don't even realize you're hot till a caution comes out or like, you don't even know how, like when the caution comes out and it's time to take a break is when you start thinking about, oh, I'm getting tired or I'm hot or, but during those green flag runs, there's no time to think about anything but holding on to it. Have you ever wanted to get into like off-road racing, like Baja 1000, Baja 500, stuff like that? No, not that in particular, but I wanted to do... So when my career stopped um, January 2018, I really wanted to do that, um, the global rallycross stuff or like the Red Bull rallycross series where they're doing the, the, you know, the dirt with the jumps. And uh, I was really wanting to do that. And then that series shut down that year. So... 
it just didn't work out. Dude, that that stuff's so gnarly. I like some of those crashes that you see with those guys, you're like, how are you how are you making it? I know those like roll cages and what goes into the technology and stuff is insane, but still it's just so brutal. Yeah. So brutal. Yeah, it's not I did buy a dirt bike again. So like I said, I grew dirt I raced dirt bikes from when I was like nine to eighteen years old. And um uh, and then I raced NASCAR, right? Then when I stopped racing NASCAR, I bought a dirt bike because I was never allowed to ride dirt bikes when I was racing. It was yeah. way too dangerous. And after a few months and I'm laying on the couch, can't walk, ice in my knee every couple of weeks, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to sell the dirt bike. <laughs> I was get, I'm too old. It hurts too bad when you fall. But I got back. I, I was like, oh, I'm going to start racing dirt bikes again. Bad decision. So I don't yeah. have a dirt bike now. I know. I stopped riding dirt bikes too. I was like, ah, I get hurt too much. I broke yeah. my pelvis riding dirt bikes. And I was like, Ooh. after that one, I was like, ah. This is probably a bad idea. Like I said, dude, it's as like men that are in action sports, we always want to, no matter what it is, it could be jumping out of airplanes. It could be riding dirt bikes. Like my profession is surfing and being a waterman, but I want to go be the best dirt biker I can be too. And like hit these crazy doubles and stuff. And then you're like, dude, I didn't grow up doing this. So then you go hit like an 80 foot double and crash. And then you're, you're out for the rest of the season surfing. You're like, this is a bad idea. It's not a really bad idea. I think that goes hand in hand, like like yourself with surfing is anybody who can kind of make it as a professional, I think naturally wants to push the limit. Like they naturally Absolutely. want to find the limit at whatever they're doing. So if you're picking up a new hobby, it's probably not just going to be for fun. You're going to want to find the limit because that's what's fun. That's where you get your adrenaline. So when you and I get dirt bikes, like we're not just going to go putter on the backyard. You're, no. you're going to want to find the limit. And unfortunately... When you find the limit on a dirt bike, it hurts really bad. <laughs> oh, it's it's insane. Dude, what about like the G-force and stuff inside of the, the NASCAR? Is that like, can you feel that tremendously? I think so. That's not something that um, that I remember feeling really. Like I, I know when I've given people rides, like in a ride-along car and stuff, and like, oh, the G-forces are nuts. And I feel it. Like, I don't ever remember feeling that until you like until you hit the wall or something like that then you obviously feel the g forces did you have um, any gnarly crashes pretty pretty bad none i mean my my son showed me my crashes on youtube sometimes they'll have like a whole blake cook crash compilation on no YouTube. way <laughs> yeah so there's some i'm gonna watch that yeah there's some crashes on there my worst one was at talladega and um i hit joey logano at the start finish line going almost 200 miles an hour Oh my goodness. And I hit him wide open. I never lifted because at, at Talladega and Daytona, it's called uh, super speedway racing. It's like restrictor plates and you're really tight and you, and it's all about drafting and you need somebody behind you. You need something in front of you. It's like advancing your line. And I remember being on the bottom lane coming to the checkered flag. I was probably running somewhere in the top 10 and I, and I look up in my mirror and I start turning up, trying to get guys to follow me to make a pass. And I'm like, oh man, no one's following me. And I look down, boom, into the car. So like, I didn't even see it coming because I was looking in my mirror, trying to keep the guys behind me. And it was, it was brutal. It was, it was hard, hard hit. Did you get injured? No, I didn't get injured, but it was definitely like the hardest hit I felt. Like my car caught on fire. So that was the first time my car's been on fire. So it got, it got really hot really quick. Um, And then, and then it's a little sketchy because you're on fire, right? But there's still cars coming on the track. So you're like, I don't want to get out and get hit by a car. I also don't want to get caught on fire. So it's like, 
you're waiting for your spotter to tell you to get out. It's a, uh, it was pretty intense. Yeah. Dude, that is so funny that you just said that. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> sketchy. You know, these guys are going like 200 miles an hour around you Yeah, and you're on fire. Like that is so gnarly. That is so gnarly. Yeah. Some of those crashes are so gnarly to, to watch. I definitely mm-hmm. want to look that up. That's insane. I didn't even know like, Dude, that's so sketchy. But it's crazy. It's crazy, like, the technology that goes into all either off-road or NASCAR, all this technology, like, you know, off-road stuff, is the roll cages are insane. You see guys doing 100 miles an hour over whoops in the desert, and they roll, and they're totally fine. Same thing with NASCAR, too. Like, you hit somebody or hit a barrier, and, you know, yeah, it yeah. catches on fire. You have your suit on, though, and everything. And next thing you know, he's jumping out of the car, and you're like, what just happened? Yeah. Like it's so gnarly. It is safe, man. Like my worst NASCAR track doesn't even come close to like an average dirt bike crash. Like with motocross, when you crash, it hurts so bad. Um, In racing, all the metal gives and you have a helmet, you're strapped in, you can barely move a neck device. Like they're super safe, man. They sound very safe. Yeah, I mean they. Are, I mean, I mean they're safe because of all that stuff, right? I think as NASCAR kind of you know from back in the day, like they weren't safe. That's probably why there's so much safety devices is because they've made it safe. Oh, absolutely. Um, but it was dangerous enough to where they had to make it safe. If you could go back and redo a race, what would you redo? Oh, there's there's two of them. Uh, I was leading both of them, so I never won a NASCAR race. And, and these are the two closest moments I had where I was at Road America leading and um, and a caution came out and I was the leader and you're supposed to save gas. So you like shut your car off, you coast as long as you can, turn it back on. Well, the last time I did it, it didn't turn back on. Like my car wouldn't turn back on. The battery got disconnected. So there's really nothing I could do because I was doing my job, but I definitely would not be saving fuel. I would just go try to win the race. And the second one was probably the closest one to winning was at Dover. I was leading with strategy. My team did a really good job. Most of the good cars were a lap down for me. Uh, We pitted early, had a good strategy. I was leading. Um, Caution came out. We were a little bit low on fuel. And when you stay on the banking, like the fuel cells, the pickups, so the way the the car gets the gas, like is in the top right-hand corner because all the force in the banking is pushing the fuel up. So when you're going slow, all the fuel goes to the bottom of the fuel cell and the pickup is up top and it gets no gas. So if I was doing my job correctly, I would have been swerving enough to keep fuel in the pickup. And I didn't do that. And I ran out of gas under caution and um, went a couple laps down, had to get pushed and uh, it haunts me, haunts me. What about memorable moments? What's what's your uh, favorite moment? Probably uh, winning the pole at Talladega. So I got like this, uh, this Coors Light Pole Award is at Talladega Super Speedway. I won the pole. And for people that don't know what that means, it's like in qualifying, I was the fastest one. So you get to start on the front row and it's a big deal. You get a trophy, there's money, you like you win the pole at Talladega. And, and it's a big deal because it's like a team effort at those Super Speedway races. You have to have a fast car. My job is minimal, but the team I was racing for, I helped start. So I started this team and we got good enough to where our car was better than all the big teams. And it was just a, it was just a really cool moment. Do you, uh, do you think about what ifs a lot? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, naturally, right? Like in, in life, you make so many decisions. So there's so many what ifs, like, did I do the right thing? What if I did this? Um, but one thing I don't regret is the the amount of work I put in. So I was afraid if my career ever ended that I'd wish I worked harder. And I can say that when my career ended, I was like, man, I get, I gave it everything I had. I, I worked the hardest. I hired the trainer. I studied. I gave it my best shot. Um, so that feels good when you can end knowing, you know, some things are out of your control, but when you give it your best shot, it it, it makes it a lot easier to, to swallow the pill when you don't have a ride. 100%. So dude, how, how did you end up getting involved with Salt Life? So you, you're from Florida then? Yep. From West Palm Beach, Florida. Okay. Yep. So you probably so, fish and surf and... Yeah, fishing mainly. I surfed a lot too, but I was it wasn't really natural. And to be honest, I'm not very good at fishing either. Like, but I love <laughs> it. Like I could be out on the water all day long fishing or surfing. Um here in North Carolina, we'll go wake surfing behind a boat at Lake Norman. Uh, but anything to do with the water, man, I love. But but fishing, uh, deep sea fishing, my son loves it now too. So we plan our trips around that. Him and I went into uh we went to Myrtle Beach and did a fishing charter for our birthdays um, a couple weeks ago. So we just love fishing, man. It's our favorite thing to do. But Salt Life. So when I got into racing, you have to have sponsors for racing. You have to give money. And I remember reaching out to Salt Life. It was 2008. It was right around the time where like I started seeing Salt Life stickers on everything, right? It was blowing up. You go to a concert, people have Salt Life. Like this just simple Salt Life shirt on. And and it was just blowing up. I was like, oh, that's a cool company. Like, I love fishing. I love surfing. Like, this fits me. Like, I would love it. So I reached out to a guy named RT, who was the owner at the time. And uh, he's like, oh, man, well, we don't have, you know, we can't really afford. We're so small. We can't really afford like a NASCAR sponsorship. But we'd love to hook you up with some gear and like grow with you. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. So, uh, signed my first contract with Salt Life in 2008 and, uh, sent me all this stuff. And it was my first time ever getting free stuff too. And, uh, and that was so cool. Got this box. And then, and then from there, I was just a lifer, right? Like Salt Life for, for life. Like they took care of me when I was nobody, nobody knew me. That was before social media too, like was big. So they believed in me and, um, and I believed in them too. And I was able to most of the time, when I did my, uh, um, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but the, but they were my first sponsor and they're still, and now they're my only sponsor, right? Like they're still my sponsor. I'm yeah. not even racing, but they just support uh, me and my son and our love for uh, for fishing and surfing in the saltwater. They just support what we love. And um, when I was in my racing career with all my teams, I, I had a contract that said I could put whatever I want on my helmet. Like I get to own my helmet, put it on silly. So, I have this, uh, this is one of my Salt Life helmets I wore in the car. No and way. Like, yeah. So Dude, my helmets so are sick. always like full Salt Life with, uh, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's pretty sick, man. So like wow. every, every helmet I, I ever wore throughout my career had Salt Life, had Salt Life on it. And, um, and they supported me. I mean, at, at some point, you know, they did a lot of great things for me. And then they sponsored my son Carter when he started racing dirt bikes. So he had a Salt Life dirt bike. And yes. I just can't say enough about the company um, of their loyalty, right, to their, their team members. Yeah. Their loyalty to me is just, uh, it's been amazing. It's insane. It's it's crazy. Like, I've had a lot of sponsors between skateboarding and surfing. And like, 
Dude, it, it's crazy to work with a company that is literally a family. Yeah. Like every time that I come to a podcast, it's so fun for me because I'm like, everybody shares similarities with depending on what you do or whatever your hobby is or your job and stuff. We all just like get along and it doesn't matter if you're on the side of the road going and walking across the street to go surf. Like that person's living the salt life too. And like, I so badly just want to like give everything to everybody and like, you know what I mean? Like salt life is such a big family and it's so fun to be a part of. It's insane. It's insane. So you have a, you have a little son. How old's your son? He's 10 now. Yep. Yep. He's been a salt life team member since he was seven or six, actually, when he made it to his first national on a dirt bike, uh, salt life hooked us up and, and sponsored him. And um, dude, yeah, it was cool. That is so sick. So where do you usually fish and like, what kind of fish do you usually go for? So we go back to Florida, um, at least four, four times a year, you know, holidays. A lot of our family is still down there. My wife's family. But my favorite thing is um, we'll go out of the Palmach Inlet or the Point Inlet and go mahi hunting, man. Go look for dolphin. Yeah, it's my favorite thing is just go look for weed lines and um, go cast in, try to hook them up. Um, or the, or I love trolling. Just, you know, a lot of the times fishing for me is like vacation, like a chill day. So if I can go out there and troll all day long and just happen to hear a reel takeoff, like it's the best feel in the world for me. Oh, it's so. insane. Yeah. Dude, I literally, I went the other day, I shot these. Oh, wow. And then I went again two days ago and I maxed out on Mahi in like probably we had, Dang. we had a ton, but I shot five and then my buddy got some too. And we maxed out in like an hour and a half. It was wow. so gnarly. It was Where so sick. Uh, outside of Oceanside here in okay. California. Yeah. Okay. It was pretty nuts. The water's super warm. The fishing's insane right now. There's fish everywhere yeah. so wow um we we took a like a 10 foot skiff out like 15 miles it was so funny dude. it was so funny that's do any, awesome do you have any crazy uh fishing stories um two of them i mean for me it's crazy right i don't get to fish as often as i'd love to but so this year my whole life i've never um speared a fish like i've never freed of and speared a fish and and for my birthday or not my birthday, it was Father's Day. Yeah, Father's Day trip this year. We rented a house in the Keys um, with um, with my in-laws and my wife's brother and, and, and his son, Brandon Kreitzer. He's like an incredible free diver. So he goes down like 60 feet and comes up with massive fish. I'm like, dude, I can't even, I don't know how you hold your breath that long, but it is ridiculous. And he taught me how to, how to spear fish. It was like eight feet of water. We worked in the pool and hold my breath. It was like eight feet of water. He pointed at a fish. I swam down, shot it and brought it up. It was just, I think it was just a grunt, whatever it was, but it was the coolest feeling in the world. Like to see a fish and get the fish that you see, like, oh, I'm so hooked. It's, it's ridiculous. I can't like sleep at night without thinking about spear fishing. So Dude, it's, uh, it's definitely gonna be a new hobby of mine for sure. I've been working, doing like the couch breath workouts and stuff. I'm trying to get better. Um, and then the last day, all on my own, I I saw this nice mutton, and I I shot it, but I lost it. So I was super bummed. That kept me up at night too. But that's definitely <laughs> like a, for me right now. That's my crazy fish story. Is like I shot my first fish. Like I'm I'm in love with it. And then second one is I got invited on a blue marlin. Uh, fishing experience this year yeah and it was in may like the first week of may and i caught a blue marlin it was nuts off of hatteras 
So, oh, it was How big. They said 350 pounds. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we didn't dude. bring it in the boat, but the captain's like said it was 350. I, they didn't measure. I don't know how they know, but they probably just look at it. They catch so many of those things. They're yeah. probably just like, yeah, that's 350. Yeah, but it was it was the craziest feeling in the world because they strap they strapped me to the pole, right? And I was already sketched out. I'm like, they're strapping me to this fish right now and not the chair. So like, I'm I'm hooked to this fish that's way bigger than me. And they had the drag set super tight and like I'm rolling it, it's picking me, the thing's picking me up out of the chair oh and someone's grabbing goodness. me back. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my God, like everything I could to gain an inch on this fish for what felt like hours. Um, and to see that thing get to the boat, grabbed it by the leader uh, was just nuts, man. To see on this fish in person, uh, how big it was, how hard it fought and just never quit. And it was nuts. And your son's super inefficient too now, huh? Yeah, he's super inefficient. Yeah. Dude, that's so sick. Yeah, that we do epic. bass fishing almost every night and we go to Florida. Uh, he's caught a, a mahi all by himself. He do some bottle fish. He caught a, like a 19-inch yellowtail last time we were in Florida Dude. all by himself. He was pumped. Yeah, Dude, that's epic. Dude, you're living large. You, you're, uh, your stories are so fun. I love, love listening to you. It's well, insane, thanks, man. What, uh, do you have any social media, Instagram or anything like that? Yeah, Instagram is um, at Blake Cook Racing and Cook, like we said, is spelled K O C H. So at Blake Cook Racing. Uh, Twitter, I think, is at Blake Cook Racing also. So those are the main things I'm on is Twitter and Instagram. And then my son Carter's at Carter Cook 157. So Sick. I used to post more to his account than I did my own. It's more fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, man. Love it, dude. Brad, well, thank you so much for coming on, Blake. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, you too. Thanks, everybody, for listening in to uh, today's podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening in to Above and Below a Salt Life podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Real Salt Life. If you've enjoyed this episode, rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast to help spread the word. And remember, stay salty.